Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Hi, this is Tim Troop Noonan. Welcome back to part three of Kettering's Bright Future, a program to reposition Kettering for a changing world. Last time, we discussed the mobility industry, the specifics of the realignment, and a master's program available for all students. Today, Dr. McMahon is going to discuss pandemic policies and practices which will persist after the pandemic, rethinking the co-op, and the learning commons, which is rising majestically behind the campus center as the physical embodiment of Kettering's bright future. Dr. McMahon, thanks for joining us again. I'd like to start with the pandemic, which we all, of course, hope eventually goes away. But regardless, we'll be living with online education and many other applications from the pandemic from now on, correct? Oh, absolutely. And there are many aspects of what we did when to support operations during the pandemic that we're going to retain. So, for example, all of our lectures are recorded and students can review the recordings of the lectures that they're leading. There's a lot of stuff that we retain because it really adds value. A lot of universities outlaw that. They do not allow courses to be taped as they were, or some of them I know. So that's, you allow all of them to be taped. Yeah. In fact, all of our courses are, it's part of our default. Let me pivot to another thing that I think was really important. I wanted to talk about something that you mentioned in your letters to the faculty and the community, and that relates to the co-op in two ways. One is, as wonderful as a co-op is, their improvements can be made in how it's integrated into the courses, into the future, into work with employers. And secondarily, that so many of us refer to the co-op as the differentiator of Kettering from other universities. And you have talked a fair amount that while it's important, and it is an important differentiator, it can no longer going forward be the sole differentiator. Do I have that right? I think that's right. And, and part of it is a language confusion, right? Because at you know, 25, 30 years ago, there were only a handful of universities that identified themselves as having cooperative programs. So the distinctiveness was very clear. Now there's not a single university out there that doesn't boast its internship and its cooperative programs. But what they are talking about when they talk about co-op is a very different reality than what we talk about. But when you use the same word, it's hard to make that, right. that distinction, right? You can call the Hope Diamond a stone, and it is. But if you, the only thing, but there's a distinct difference between that and the pebble at the beach. The Kettering Co-op program is, going back to our earlier conversation, is built around a different educational model. And the cooperative experience is an integral part of the education of the student. At most other institutions that have cooperative experiences or internships, these are incidental to the education of the student. They're kind of like, here's what the real world is like. Go experience it for three months and watch. And this is what you're going to do. Ours is it's integral to the education, like the much like the you know playing of the piano. It's the playing of the piano part of the education of the student at Kettering. But we're handicapped by the fact that we use the same, the traditionally we've used the same vernacular to describe it. Furthermore, that in and of itself 
is insufficient to fully articulate the, the value of a Kettering education. Where we have not always done a great job as an institution is articulating this difference clearly and the value, the value proposition, if you will, of this difference clearly and setting those expectations up front. That's the harder thing. There's some aspects of the way we, in which we deliver the co-op to our students that can be improved and we need to improve them and will improve them. And setting the expectations of students about why are we doing the co-op is also an important component of that. And what I mean by this is I had a conversation with a student recently and they were was upset because he actually had a fantastic co-op opportunity with a great organization and they they were looking to support him and do awesome. But he was upset by it. And I stood and talked with him for some time. And his upset centered around the fact that the co-op, he acknowledged it was a good opportunity. He said, but it wasn't exactly what he wanted to do for a career. And I looked at him and, and we talked this through and I said, you know, that's actually not the purpose of the co-op. The purpose of the co-op is not to provide you with an entry-level job that is exactly what you are going to be doing once you graduate. I said, because for one thing, what you do as when you graduate is likely to, you're going to likely want to change that over the course of your four years here, but let's assume that you don't. And then I used the piano analogy with him and I talked about why we do the co-op. And I said, okay, so let's say you get to, you know, your fourth year of piano and you decide you don't like the piano. What you really love is the French horn. Has everything you've learned about music, is it invalidated by your change of instruments? And he looked at me and he said, and he said, well, no, I said, exactly. I said, the purpose of the co-op as we do it, the purpose of the integration of the practice into the discipline is not just about providing you with the perfect entry stepping stone to your career, but it's actually about education. We do it because it's education. We do it not because it's a separate job or a separate function, but it's integral to your education. It is teaching you things that you cannot learn in the classroom. You simply can't learn them there. You have to learn them in applying them. So everything you learn about music, about playing music, about music theory, about scales and composition and how pieces go together, everything you learn by playing the piano translates directly to the French horn without modification. You have to learn how to blow a horn and, and switch valves rather than keys, but everything else is a constant and you've already learned. I said, you've got to think of the co-op in this way, even though it's not exactly what you want, it's teaching you everything you need. So it's a question of what you're saying is as much about semantics and expectations as it That's is right. about specifics. I've spoken to a, a, quite a few people on their co-ops and a number of them compare them to the round or the things that a medical student goes in this, that, and the other discipline yeah. uh, and learns a great deal. Another person, and I believe it was Carla Bilo, 
said, you know, I learned, you know, I came in with this idea about certain voices in the plant. And I learned by being on the factory floor and being in different places, the agenda and the feelings and the context and the perspective of these people. And had I gone straight into the area that I was going into, I would have never done that. And so I had a broader understanding of a lot more of the organics of a corporation. I thought that was interesting. Exactly. And that translates to whatever discipline you want. So I think one of the areas that we haven't done well in past and where we need to improve with the co-op in terms of how we do it is one, we need to improve how we set those expectations up front with students. We need to explain this. Our students are really smart. They understand it when you give them a good explanation. And set those explanations up front and say, okay, now this is why we're doing it. We just want you to know it's not about just getting a job. It is part of your education. It's a critical part of your education. We do it as a university because through this mechanism, we can teach you things that you can't learn here in the classroom. You just can't learn them here. There's just no way to do it here. But what we don't always do with the students is set those expectations clearly up front. Because I had a student, another, a completely different example, a student who came to me was really upset because she started off, she thought she wanted to be a mechanical engineer, and she really didn't like it. And she was switching to chemical engineering. And she, and she says, yeah, and all that time I spent in my mechanical engineering co was a waste. I said, absolutely not. I said, it is absolutely not a waste. I said, for starters, why did you decide to become a chemical engineer and not a mechanical engineer? She said, well, I didn't like my, didn't like what I was doing in my car. I didn't like being a mechanical engineer. I said, exactly. I said, exactly. That's valuable information to have. That's incredibly valuable information. I said, you would have never learned that in a classroom. You would have studied mechanical engineering for four and a half years, you did all this stuff, and you would have graduated in full glory and gone into your first position in mechanical engineering and said, hey, I really don't like this. What am I going to do? Now, you've actually found that out in time to correct, to change, and it not have a negative impact on your, on your and you found something you love. And quite frankly, all the skills that you, most if not all the skills that you acquired on your first co-op, directly applicable because personalities, human factors, organizational behavior, all these things, you know, the things that Carlo Bela was talking about, all these things are constants. It doesn't matter if you're an electrical engineer or a chemical engineer or whatever, it's the constants. Working in organizations. Those are all skills that apply right across the board. It's playing the French horn rather than the piano. That's the power of the model. And we're not always great because we believe so strongly in the model, the educational model. We believe so strongly in what we do, and we've been doing it for so long. We sometimes take that aspect of it as understood, and I don't think it is well understood by many and we need to be better at explaining the value prop and the rationale and the underlying reason for why we do what we do this other sort of major topic i would want to just touch on is too big a topic for us to address here it's its own discussion perhaps but at the same time i'd be remiss if i didn't refer to it at least as the living symbol on campus of what is 
hopefully, as we started talking about, and we're talking about all of this as a transformative moment in the university and the what is delivered and particularly the way it is delivered. And that's the learning commons, which will be uh, completed. It is emblematic of a lot of what we've been talking about here. Tell us a little bit about that. Everyone's aware of it. I would like them to be aware of it as symbolic of not just a cool new building, but really this pivot that the university is going into the future on the agenda that you've been talking about for the last hour. But tell us a little bit about where it is and how it does represent opportunities to carry out the changes that the task force has been making. Yeah, I think we need to spend a lot of time here, but I I would summarize it like this. I am extremely excited about the learning commons because like our educational model is unique in the United States, this building is unique in American universities. There's no other building like it in America, in the university, anywhere. And that's not just me saying that. That's people who have evaluated architects. They looked at it and said, oh my gosh, this is completely different concept. It is, and it really flows from what we do and how we do it. Universities always build, they like to build buildings and they build buildings for all sorts of reasons, but they do the same thing. They always do it the same way. They get a bunch of committees together. And each committee has its own scope. And then that committee partitions the building in some way. So they start off by saying, we're going to build this fancy new building on campus. And we're going to put this department in it. So we need this many offices. We need this many classrooms. We need this many broom closets. We need this many, you know, laboratories. We need whatever. And they come up with a list of spaces that they need to create. And then they hire a fancy architect and then the architect puts a really beautiful wrapper around it. And if, and if they're a really great architect, it's a highly energy efficient wrapper and, and it's pretty, but it all looks the same when you get inside. It's a bunch of functional spaces with a nice wrapper around it. We didn't do that at all. We never even started from that perspective. We started from a very different perspective. We said, if we took what we know about Kettering students, about our educational model. If we take what we've learned about how our students interact, how they work together, how they study their patterns, all all those things that we've gleaned from from the creation of the D spaces and other innovation spaces on campus, we watch, we learn, we, we interact with students, we ask them what's working, what isn't working, all of these things. And we say, okay, we're going to take that, that knowledge, that learning, and we're going to take, and we're going to build a 105,000 square foot building in the center of campus that functions as a, a unit, that functions as one thing, not a bunch of little spaces chopped up for different things, as one space that the entire building functions as a single entity, if you will, on campus that incorporates all that we've learned about our model and our students and how they work together, et cetera, you would create the learning commons. And that's the basis of the learning commons. So the learning commons is this incredible environment that has all of these interesting aspects to it. But somebody asked me, well, how many lecture halls are there? How many lecture rooms are there in the classrooms in the building? And I said, 
Out of 105,000 square feet, we have about zero square feet dedicated to that. And they say, well, how many offices? I said, well, offices, that's a different story. Out of 105,000 square feet, we have zero square feet dedicated to offices. There are no offices. There are no classrooms in there. There are all sorts of collaboration spaces. There are D spaces. There are dozens of D spaces of various flavors. There's open space. There's flexible space. There's collaboration rooms. There are studios. There's one of the largest maker spaces in the state of Michigan in there. There's a modern dining facility that functions like a kitchen rather than a, than a dining hall. You can eat anywhere in the building. You can take food functions more like you would in your home. You want a piece of pizza, you go down and get a piece of pizza. There are formal kind of performance venues. There's informal gathering areas. There's even a small apartment in the building. Now, what is their apartment doing in this building? Well, there's an apartment in the building because if we have a guest to the university, if we have a speaker coming to speak to students, if we have a prospective faculty member, we want them to stay on campus. We want them to be in the campus, eating with the students, working with the students, interacting with the students. It's a completely different concept of what an academic space is. You walk into it, and as you walk into it from the campus center, you're faced with a soaring four-story high atrium with a conference room that, that cantilevers out into space across the atrium. I mean, it's a spectacular visual, an inspiring visual space that works on so many levels. Winston Churchill once said, and I love this quote, which I'm paraphrasing, of course, something to the effect of, you know, we, we shape our spaces and then they shape us. So the idea of the learning commons is how do you build a building that shapes us, that reinforces the learning modes, that reinforces the collaboration behaviors, that reinforces the working patterns of our students, that enables them, that fosters the kinds of collaboration and interaction that we want, that creates a social and educational nexus for the campus, that allows for people to freely engage and see. You can stand at one side of this building and look across and see the other side of the building. From and you can the, also see the other side and down three floors and, and down three floors, the energy there. And what I like is that the furniture is there's some furniture that kind of lives over here or lives over there, but there's none of these set things because no, it's, it's all liquid. It's all fluid so that students can adapt and sit in groups of two or sit in groups of four or close off or open up or sit here and go online to a class that's maybe happening in the next building over, but they want the four of them to be able to communicate in this space over here while others are having coffee on top of the coffee bar in the center atrium. I mean, it's, it's, it's an yeah. extraordinary concept. It really is. And people who go in and see it, you know, I've had people go in and just be slack jawed over what they see. And I know that there are several universities in other States that are looking at this project that have, want to tour it because they're thinking about their own buildings and they're thinking about, wow, this is a very different model for how 
universities think about space and how they think about collaboration spaces. It's kind of like the idea that comes behind, that's behind the D school at Stanford, a very famous design school out there that where the spaces are fluid and they're interactive and there's and they're not precious so students can mold them to their own use patterns i was uh, at a, a previous university that i was at we reinvented the central part of the campus i learned a very valuable lesson from the chancellor there he he was very 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 sharp very smart we built this amazing central plaza to the campus and as I was looking over the designs for it with him one day, I, I said, you know, I noticed that there's no paths here. There was a central plaza, but there were no um, sidewalks going to the central plaza from anywhere. He said, no, there aren't. I said, well, aren't you worried that they're going to they're gonna tamp down the grass and they're gonna, people are going to, he said, exactly. He said, that's exactly what I want. And so we put in the main plaza and we let the students define where the sidewalks would be because we looked for where the worn grass was. After about two months after we opened the plaza, where the students were walking was very clear because there was bare ground on certain ribbons. And that's, where, you put, that's where they put and the And then we went back in and we put the sidewalks there. That's a very organic way that extends to a lot of other stuff in the building, it seems to me. And that's a lesson I took to this building. I mean, part of the building, I mean, we talk about a 21st century building, right? We don't know what the building needs to do 20 years from now. We don't know what it needs to support. But what we do know is we're going to let the students show us where the paths are. And they have that capacity by and they have that capacity. fluid building and everything else. That's right. Well, let me back up to where we started in this discussion and emphasize that it doesn't seem to me that this is another of the occasional shifts and changes in a few courses, a couple of tweaks here and there, but a major shift in the terms of the university to take advantage of or to respond to changes that are happening and to take advantage of opportunities in the future and to, as you just described with the building, do it in such a way that's organic and comes out of the way the students operate, comes out of the way that employers, their future employers have needs and adapts to all of that rather than sets up some ossified learning system that stamps out certain types of mechanical engineers. And so using all this task force and the building and the learning commons and other things as a sort of representative of that turning point, tell us a little bit about how you see that, where the university is going, what it's, how it's going to be different in 10 years or 20 years as a result of this moment in history, as a result of this uh, change, as a result of all the things that are going on right now? It's a great observation. I think that history is made in hindsight, right? I think that if we are successful in executing on all of these dimensions, which I fully expect we will be, because we have a marvelous team of people here who are passionate about the education, who are passionate about our students, this will be viewed in the history of the institution as one of those turning points, kind of like when the university went private 
or you know, when it changed into a degree-granting institution, it would be one of those milestones in the history of the institution where the institution said, okay, we've celebrated our centennial, and that is the time when we need to really deeply evaluate what is the promise of the next century, what is the bright future ahead, and how do we position ourselves for success going forward? And so the task force, all of those initiatives, all that came out of that notion of this is the time it's appropriate for us to take this moment to be very careful and introspective about what we're doing, what value we are providing to our students, and as importantly, what do we need to do to prepare ourselves to be successful going forward? Because this institution is a jewel. As I said before, it is a jewel. It is. It produces some of the most amazing outcomes for students and for our graduates of any institution in the nation. It needs to thrive. It needs to be positioned to be successful and going forward. And I, and I take that responsibility very seriously. I think there is a very bright future ahead for the institution. I think nothing in education can be more relevant than the type of education we deliver to our students today. And I'm excited to be a part of it and to work with all the fantastic faculty and staff here and our students to make it happen. Dr. McMahon, thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. This has been great. Thank you, Tim. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.